everybody. How you doing? Welcome back to the Safe Deck Podcast. Very excited to be talking with you guys again for the week. It's a Friday, technically. It's March 27th, 2020. It is super cloudy in Seattle. Thought we were done with this. I guess it doesn't really matter, but I would have preferred to have seen blue skies and a couple little dollops of clouds over this stupid gray we've been dealing with for months. How is quarantine going? For me, uh, it's okay. Uh, I'm still getting used to working from home, which is still a little bit of a struggle, but I'm getting back into it. I reviewed a whole bunch of music. I bought a whole bunch of music last Friday, and I, I reviewed a little bit of it. Uh, we're just going to be going through the line over the last, of the next month of just all the releases that I've bought, because I'm really excited to share with you some of the music that I bought uh, over that day. Um, to start with, a record by Dumama plus Ketchu, released now called Buffering Juju, South African folklore, experimental, folk, pop, what have you. Uh, it's multifaceted. It is crazy good. Absolutely recommend you guys go check that out. A lot of traditional South African instruments combined with synthesizer, combined with uh, the storytelling that sort of recaptures... It almost like it, it, it's a new age or new era, I should say, uh, South African folklore, where it's less patriarchy-based, it's less traditionalized, uh, it's fresh and it's exciting, and uh, it feels of the vanguard. So totally recommend to go check that out. I also covered an ambient album, uh, Fote's On Hold. I actually recommend buying that one because all the proceeds go to the NYC Food Bank and they can defs- they definitely could use it right now. Um, it's a really cool ambient album. It's based entirely on uh, music that's uh, and tunes and sounds that are from call waiting systems, and uh, which is why it's called On Hold. Great concept, executed very well, super great. Go check it out. Uh, on local shores, I reviewed a record by a local band called Ihi Iji. It's uh, the project of one Zach Burba, who has been a local musician for over ten years in this area, but grew up in the Phoenix DIY scene. Um, that record is astonishingly good. It has so many contributors, as every Ihi record does. Uh, it was actually my first exposure to the band, and uh, gotta say, it's it's so good. It's it it covers a lot of bases. It's experimental indie pop. Um, it's more psychedelic this time around, um, which is a really successful dynamic that he's executed. Like because the way that he creates music is sort of already kind of bordering on psychedelia. Like he employs a bunch of um, instrumentalists and, and throws in a whole bunch of instruments, and uh, it's very focused in that regard. Uh, and there's just a lot of stuff, like Something to Say, uh, In Motion, uh, those are all fantastic songs. Um, I would totally recommend go checking that out. And then finally, I just released a, a long-winded, probably too long, um, review of Childish Gambino's new record, um, which, you know, you are already a fan of Childish Gambino, perhaps. I don't think this record is going to change your mind about who he is or what he does. I will say that uh, there are some very thrillingly awesome, risky, experimental pop songs on that record. And there's also a lot of annoying moments that are just sort of prototypical to the group itself, you know, to the artist. A lot of weird, off-putting noises and codas and weird sort of half-baked, high-minded concepts, which we've just sort of come to expect from the project. So if that's still your bag... Man, there's some really great songs on that record, so I would totally recommend go checking that out. So we don't know when this quarantine is going to end. I am assuming it's probably going to. Well, the thing, the weird thing about the United States specifically is that you're you're not really going to see 
a lot of border closures between states. So even though we do sort of function like a lot of different little tiny countries that end up speaking the same language and are all ruled over one government, um, you know, even though Seattle got hit with the virus first, and we've been in a situation where we've been a, taking care of this virus for the last month, month and a half, it's probably going to be longer for us because we are about as fast, this, this thing shuts down as fast as this, the place where it spreads the slowest, you know, where it's most extended. You know what I'm saying? So who knows how long this is going to last? I know that a lot of artists around have taken it upon themselves to do uh, some live streaming events, which are really, really cool. Uh, I've been checking out uh, Evan Floyd Barnes' Cooped Up, which is really cool. It's just him uh, playing uh, bass the way he does extraordinarily well and uh, just talking. It's, it's a lot of these right now, too. It's not just playing music, though. There's a whole lot of other stuff that people are doing. It's one of those things I've been finding myself before this all happened, really s viewing the Internet in an overall slightly negative light. I was one of those people that just, I've never liked social media. I don't think my personality really translates through it. So I've, I, I avoid it. And then also just seeing everything, the news or what people are saying or the way people treat each other just stresses me out. You know, I've had a negative opinion of it for, for a second. But I will say, if this quarantine, if this pandemic had hit and this quarantine, this global quarantine was happening not even 20 years ago, you know, we would have been perhaps in a much worse situation, I would say. It's just, we can, it, it's, it's blessed really that this online capability thing can happen, that people can reach out to each other and stay social even when they're staying indoors, you know? It's something that I think we should be grateful for, despite the fact that we're not gonna have a lot of stuff to be grateful for in the future, you know, because who knows what's going to happen. Okay, that's enough about the virus. This is a podcast about entertainment and music, and that's exactly what's going to happen. So, without any further ado, I'm going to introduce you to this lovely person. Their name is Jordan Bronner. Uh, they came over uh, a month and a half ago and they talked about chiptune and a whole bunch of other stuff. It was a super, super cool discussion. I thoroughly enjoyed myself. I hope you will thoroughly enjoy yourself too. Um, make sure to check us out at tapedeckpodcast.com. Make sure to subscribe to us on Patreon. Hopefully, uh, there's some cool rewards on that site. I'm about to put out another retrospective review tomorrow. It's going to be freaking sweet. Uh, and if you subscribe to the gold tier by April 7th, you will get a free t-shirt, um, which is super cool. It's super comfy. Maybe that tickles your fancy. Who knows? Uh, need something to sleep in? Grab a shirt. <laughs> All right. Uh, we're going to get to this interview. Thanks so much. Enjoy. Today on the pod, I've got with me Jordan Bronner. Uh, they're a local musician. They had a kind of an indie rocky, mathy band called Meanderthals um, last August or something like that. We yeah, did a yeah. review of their album. Uh, We're doing our best and loved it. Um, not oh, that it matters. You. We gave it a really nice review. Um, and uh, but now they've got a new project. It's like a it's a solo project, right? It's like a chip tune. Yes, uh, yes. It's called Hurry Up Snufkin, which. Mm -hmm. The moment I heard that name, I had actually just recently watched some weird compilation from the Moomins, which I believe mm -hmm, is where the show mm -hmm. is based on. Yeah, it's the name of an episode from the um, from the uh, it was the '90s animated uh, adaptation. The Moomin. Yeah. Wait, there's an adaptation? 
Well, the 90s show. Ah, I Because uh, I think there was an older one, like, in the 70s? I don't know. I might be wrong. Interesting. Um, what was the one that's famous? Is it the 90s adaptation? I think it's or? the 90s adaptation. Weird. Yeah. What? I don't know. I, I might be totally wrong. Maybe I'm starting off, like, like this conversation by just spouting misinformation. Please, don't worry about it. <laughs> but it's a <laughs> This niche. whole show is no. whatever the hell you want it to be. Um, uh, is it from a specific country? Yeah, uh, so so it, the Moomin like intellectual property is is based on the art by Tove Janssen, who is a uh, Tove Janssen. Yes, she was a uh, cartoonist, and the Moomins were a comic strip, um, and it was from oh, I, I believe she was Icelandic, but the original like releases of the Moomins were released in both Icelandic and Swedish. I believe. Interesting. So, like, Northern European. Yeah. Yeah. And then, obviously, because they are so cute and They're really, and really amazing, adorable. They really picked up, like, a lot of popularity in Japan, and so there's been a lot of, like, Japanese uh, translations as well. I actually sort of assumed that's where it was to begin with, mm-hmm, was mm-hmm. Japanese, you know? Yeah. I, it, was, it was actually, like... So, it was originally a comic strip with just that classic Moomin art, and I actually discovered that um that whole thing because i was like when i was a little kid i was i was homeschooled um for my entire life yeah uh so just only read books to that sounds like learn. a nice existence it was fine yeah it was, it was good uh but i i read there were like novel adaptations of the moomins and it just like it was incredibly incredibly like inspiring as a little kid just to read about this oh awesome socialist group of <laughs> people living in a pleasant valley together. A utopia. Yes. Oh, that sounds so really nice. nice. Um, yeah. I need to actually watch more of that show because it, it looked, the, the writing at least, looked just real cute and kind of compelling and I yeah. there isn't a lot that I've seen that's like it. You it, know, it's so classically, first of all, it's classically 90s. Yes, you yes. Know, as exactly. far as that kind of animation is concerned. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. But, it, it, they address some, some like darker themes too because like, because it's, it's very wholesome, but there's also, like, the first episode of that series uh, is, like, the, uh, like, springtime is coming, and there's this magical top hat that, like, flows through on the river, and it, and uh, Moomin Troll, the, the protagonist Moomin, puts on the top hat, and it turns him into something else, uh, like, into some, like, imp creature, and his family doesn't recognize him, and... Right in the first episode, there's this heartfelt scene where he's like crying his Aww. eyes out and like, "Do you do you recognize me, mom?" <laughs> oh, shit. And his mom like looks him in the eyes and she's like, "I know it's you." Oh, that's oh, and it's sweet. Just fucking. That's dem- really sweet. But, but like, yeah, weirdly like emotionally literate for that's a good. children's for a children's series. show. That's yeah. the best kind of children's shows. You yeah, know, yeah. suitable for all ages. Mm-hmm. You know. So, um, before we dive into that, uh, <laughs> tell me what happened with Neanderthals, because I really loved that band. I, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sorry I didn't get to see you guys live. I know oh, you no, guys no. have played a show. I had something else going on that day. Um, how did that sort of... You guys aren't doing anything anymore. Right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, the Neanderthals thing was always kind of, like, my thing. Uh, not to just, you know, seem like a megalomaniac or anything, but, like, <laughs> I don't know. I When I decided to start doing music, I wrote all the Neanderthal stuff on acoustic guitar. Yeah. And then I kind of just, like, pressured my friends to join a band with me. And, you know, uh, we had a lot of different member switch-ups. And what ended up happening was, like, I 
we had some members drop out slash become unavailable right at the point that I was kind of wanting to pursue something else and go in a different direction. Mm-hmm. And I and in a lot of ways that kind of had to do with I love we we were kind of math rock post punky a lot of different stuff. Yeah, it, and it I like was writing a lot of very kind of frenetic kind of anxiety produced material Mm -hmm. and it was really hard to Mm -hmm. teach people (laughs) and i was like preaching to the choir (laughs) we could get a bunch of new people in the band and we could learn all this new stuff or uh i could not have to worry about that Mm -hmm. and it's so it's and i was wanting to go in a more kind of twee solo direction and chiptune was something that i've been doing on the side for year for over a decade just for fun okay and I just wanted to do it. I wanted to see if I could do it. Cool. Like, yeah. Nice. And Hence then, the yeah. refocusing. Yeah. And like, I don't want to like shit on math rock <laughs> as a genre, but I just, I, there is a tendency, I think, in the more, in the genres that put a favor on, I'd say like technicality in music Yeah. to be kind of like flexy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a little showy. maybe. Yeah. And I, I was like totally understand that. I felt I felt myself always giving into the pressure of being like I love this part that I'm writing, but is it hard enough yeah. that people won't be like like because the the people I was working with were very good musicians mm-hmm. and I felt uncomfortable being like here's this easy song. Yeah, oh my god. <laughs> Which Ugh. is a terrible place to be in cuz it you, is it's yeah. so true. Mm-hmm. Like when you when you are dealing with talented musicians, there is the pressure to sort of write parts that that are at their level. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Instead of like, but then again, it's like there's talent, and then there's being there's a certain type of musician that's like able to play that well, but is also completely fine with being with playing parts that are below that level. You know. Yeah. And yeah. that's a rare breed. Mm-hmm, rarer mm-hmm. than rarer than is a little. I was sort of feeling the same way in a lot of other projects I was doing, you know, like mm-hmm. just happening to come upon people that were a really, really talented, but didn't want to play those parts and yeah. be other people who loved playing those specific parts, but also couldn't do anything beyond that. You yeah. know, it's hard yeah. to find that balance, you know, yeah. um, and also be a cool person, you know, who's like yeah. easy to be, <laughs> to get along with and punctual and like literally all the impossible qualities that make up the perfect musician. It's you know? just, yeah. And, and yeah, my experience was just, it's really, really, especially if you are kind of starting from the ground floor, if you haven't made your name yet, or if people aren't knocking down your door trying to be a member of your band cause you're doing crazy things, you know, mm-hmm. um, it's really hard to find people who are both good <laughs> and who want to be in your band. Yeah. This is... <laughs> oh, like, my God. It's just... I that mean, hits home. And I... Yeah, so I, I ended up feeling like we were kind of running up against a wall in terms of that. You can sort of sense it at that point where you're just like, yeah. nothing anymore I, I can do is going to make this evolve and grow in the way that it, it could. So yeah, I, I can also, see that. I, I like playing shows and I like I like... Playing shows with my friends, and I, one of the, I'm sure you're familiar with this too, one of the kind of pitfalls of being in a group with multiple people in it is someone comes to you and they're like, do you want to play this show on this date? And you're like, 
let let me run it by the guys. Yeah, and then, and then and then you're like, oh, and then like you know, Bill is on a hiking trip. Like, oh, he's I, gotta I gotta work. I gotta take care of the kid. Well, it's like now I can just be like, I look at my calendar. I'm like, yeah, I can do that. Yeah, I can do that. Yeah. This, this is, I'll show up. I've been thinking about doing more solo. I got an offer to do a solo show on the 29th um, mm-hmm. at a house. It was the people I used to live with, and they were like, let's do a show. And uh, when you, oh. Happy birthday! <laughs> yeah. Oh, I freaking love that. How, yeah. how old you? you don't have to say how old you're turning. Oh no, I'm uh, I'm turning seven. Wow. Because. Oh wait, you're a leap year birthday? Yeah. Oh my god, you are actually. It's my uh, actual birthday. That's for fantastic. Once. I only get once every four years. It's but... nice that you get to have a sweet sixteen when you're sixty-four. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's nice that you get to drive when you're four. That's that's something yeah, that people. True. <laughs> I like th- that's one of those things where it's like if you're a short person or a tall person and every time people every time people see you they make a joke about it. Yeah. For me it was like uh like I got pulled over by a cop once and I was like, "Oh god, like I just don't want this to you be You know what's a thing. coming. And the cop looks at my ID and he's like, "Uh sir, do you know like you're uh you know you're, you're, you're too young to be driving?" And I'm like <laughs> I was like, "Fuck, fuck, 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 please just don't hurt <laughs> you me." Just like completely go into like the baby talk to be like, "Yeah, I told to drive." I don't know. I was I was just like panicking. I like, <laughs> yeah, I can I imagine. Like, <laughs> did you? Wow, actually, did they? They were cool with it, right? Oh and no, yeah. They were just joking. But but he did the thing first where he's like, hmm, like oh, he made no. that eye contact with me where I was like, what a jerk. Am I in trouble? Like <laughs> you're kind of you're trying to flex on me right now, <laughs> and I do not appreciate this. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> I don't panic. <laughs> you're yeah, giant your arm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. The people can't see it. I have a. I have a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy tattoo on my arm. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. I was about to say, because that's, first of all, great life advice mm-hmm. in general. Yes. Regardless of whether or not you've read that book, that's just great life advice. Yes. Um, yes. So, okay, Manorthal's absolutely listen to that record. It's it's great. It's off on Den Tapes. You get a cassette. Yes, yes. Listen to it online. It's, it's uh, great. So- Sonic Boom, Fat Cat Records. Yes. There's places. I have a big old it's box spin, of, of It's at Spin Cycle, I believe, because nice. I used to frequent that shop. Awesome. And, uh, they they carry some dent tapes. I believe I've seen that tape there. Uh, I'm thinking I'm probably just gonna give them away for free at Snufkin shows because I, you know, we released our album and I got a big old box of tapes and then we broke, broke up. up. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> so so might as well just give them out. <laughs> that'll do it. I'll be like, oh yeah, this is, this is yeah. a band. This is a band I was in. It's nothing like this, but <laughs> <laughs> it makes me wish I still had a working tape cassette player because I borrowed. Mm. I I had one for free. My old manager at my old shop was like, I've got a junkie tape cassette player do you want one and I was mm. like yeah and then I bought my first tape from a shop I was like wow I'm one of these people now I get to listen to tapes mm-hmm. and the tape is an indie tape and unfortunately I'm not gonna say who it was because the tape was not put together properly like it was like reversed and so I fed it through the machine and it did not play it just got caught oh, and no. then the tape cassette machine broke after that but it was a different insulated <laughs> incident so I was just yeah. like I, this is this is too hard. Yeah, it's, it's, too it's hard. hard it's like uh, I used to I used to do like Super Smash Brothers tournaments, and uh, in that community, they are very dependent on CRT televisions still. And wow. so there's a huge thing Which of makes like makes a lot of sense because it, it's, it's a whole thing. Is of, it like, the original Smash Brothers for that? Yeah, the the GameCube one. Uh, oh, the GameCube so the one as one. well. Melee. Yeah, uh, and and the whole thing is like uh, you can't have um, buffer delay that's applied on LCD televisions. Oh, really? And so the CRT televisions are faster and more responsive on like a millisecond basis. And so because everybody's such a fucking purist in that period, they're like, I don't feel this. And so people are like (laughs) going to Goodwill and like lugging out like pickup trucks of like five uh, CRT televisions. I'm trying to think of the the brand. Toshiba? Yeah, just just like the... (laughs) 
Panasonic. With a VHS player still in it. <laughs> Holy shit. Um, but I, what was I? Oh, yeah. Uh, I remember. So I have like a crappy, crappy tape player at home, too. Yeah. But I, I still have, I think. I used to, there was like one day where I picked up a bunch of cassettes and the one cassette I can remember, I can't remember the name of it, but I, what I remember is it was a Sting cassette. So it was, it was Sting, you know, Sting. And the actual he, musician. Yes. I don't know why yes. I said that. I was, it was like, a cassette oh, that yes, stings sting. you. <laughs> uh, no, so it was Sting and I believe Sting, Sting was commissioned to make a soundtrack for a fantasy movie. I heard about this. I actually remember hearing about this, but I cannot remember what the actual movie was. I don't either. It wasn't either. Waterworld, was it? No, oh, it was God. some movie that I believe, like, I don't think anybody has will ever remember what it's called, but it was that, and I was, like, weirdly into it, and it was weird and new wave, but also fantastical, mixolydian kind of... <laughs> That's kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, and there was that. That's all I can remember. And then, and then, like, uh, like when I first started playing shows, um, I would just do like acoustic open mics, and then I did uh, an open mic where I met the band Bobcat, who were like they're they're still an amazing local band, and they do like power pop. I would say they're alkaline trio esque, like very classic, like interesting, like power emo like uh you know i like alkaline trio and they played a bunch of shows with mud on my bra and then i started picking up the den tape stuff and the i got the the mud on my bra um oh that that cassette that they the um it was named after a town in seattle it was the 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 aberdeen album the oh god something like that yeah and and yeah then i just started like falling in love with the the, the den tapes kind of uh new release of uh of cassette tapes as like mm-hmm. a fun little like i love den tapes oh they're so nice yeah they put yeah. out so much good material they're so k nice. works her ass off too i am oh, mentioned yeah. this already in another podcast i'm a fan of hers oh yeah, yeah um uh yeah that stuff is so good it's good mm-hmm. that they put out that tape for sure yeah yeah um so um, let's yeah. talk more about this new project okay cool. yeah, you've gotten yeah. yes yeah. um so you mentioned before that this is not the first time you've been doing chiptune you've been doing it for about a decade now. yeah yeah what drew you to chiptune well, I would say okay. So there's two kind of there's two kind of things that drew me into chiptune. Um, I was probably like 15 or 16 when I started listening to it, and it was literally just because like my one of my first experiences, like again as a as like a homeschooler, like kind of I w- wasn't incredibly socialized, and I was really academic and got good grades in school. Yeah, of course. To whatever that whatever extent whatever that means when you're yeah. homeschooled. Uh, <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah uh and so i would just like uh and like we didn't have a lot of money so i i just had a hand me down my older half brother gave me a game boy and nice. a, a a plastic like dark blue gap bag <laughs> drawstring bag i'm already of games picturing this with like marble madness all mm-hmm. the like old gray like original like game boy cartridges yep and one of those was uh was um Link's Awakening mm. for the original what Game Boy. What a great Boy, soundtrack that was. Which is just I I don't know the name of the guy who did it, but I should probably Was look it Koji that up. Kondo? It might have been. I have to it, assume it well Koji Kondo did all of the Nintendo successes um I, I would back imagine then. it it's very much in the kind of um 
in the vein of a lot of other Zelda soundtracks where it's very modal and very kind of, um, oh God, I can't remember the, the, what's the music term where there's a theme that comes back every once in a while? Reprise? Or no, uh, refrain or refrain. something? Refrain, oh, it's oh, like, it's, an, it's like a theme, motif. Motif, yeah, like there's that. lots of motifs where it's like very, this is this person's theme and this is that person's theme. That's cool. And it was the Link's Awakening game, like, like inspired me so much because it the plot of that game is it's a it's kind of filler there's the whole legend of zelda like grand timeline and this is just a little like episode that Mm -hmm. happens like along the way yeah and but it's like it's a nice little episodic thing the fact that it's self-contained it's self-contained and it is so conceptual and existential yeah Exactly. the whole plot is Link, you know, green guy, washes up on the shore of this island. And he finds out, like, spoiler alert, I guess it was released in early 90s. So uh, he finds out that the island is a dream. Yeah. The whole thing is a creation of this mystical creature called the windfish. Yeah. And he's got to collect instruments. Got to collect the instruments to play the ballad of the windfish, which is a common motif that's found throughout the soundtrack but that's what's cool is that because the plot was had featured instruments and stuff it allowed the composers to sort of play around with that you know yeah it's sort of a novel concept you know it's really novel and it allows for a lot of like there's a lot of really cool characters like there's kind of a love interest called Marin who's like you know Zelda isn't in the game but she's like the Zelda of the game yeah and Link makes friends with her and then he makes connections with all these people and then has to come to terms with the fact that his mission is to wake up the windfish and in waking up the windfish to defeat like the the evil yeah. bad guy it means everybody goes away yeah oh like, the island okay so there is like a little bit of an existential thing to that yeah and it's very like wistful and like like just made me cry just a, a small bit. masterpiece especially when yeah. you're that young they're so form these yeah. form i i have found there is now several micro generations you know like this generation our generation i guess technically mm-hmm. you know did you just talk to so many people who who played video games that came out back when video games were starting to get very narratively interesting mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. that that have become formative moments for them you know yeah. and it's sort of like it, it is its own influence you know like certain rpgs around that era for example mm-hmm. helped break kids out of Christianity like as or, or oh, yeah, yeah, organized yeah, yeah. religion like very very formative in that there's mm-hmm. ones that had their own mature side plots that taught them more about the world and this stuff you know and yeah. it's fascinating that that ours is sort of the first generation to have that you know to to have that be a part of it and yeah. and and, and yeah. it's, it's like a branching you know and, and growing up in like you know like very organized religion in in my upbringing as well like that was a first kind of there's not a in a in a uh, kind of a doctrine of absolutes like that game kind of got into some gray areas of like beauty is fleeting Mm -hmm. and uh, you know life is finite and really deep stuff and like uh, made you think about it it made it it yeah it got philosophical in a way that was also like like gave me a love of music Um, that's completely like literally formative for that you know yeah um, I have found out the composers actually was not Koji Kondo. Really? It's Minako Hamano and Kazuo Ishikawa. Um, two composers, apparently, but that really? makes a lot of sense. Yeah. You know? um, it, I also found an interesting tidbit. Um, mm-hmm. 
the director Tezuka uh, wanted Link's Awakening the world to feel like Twin Peaks. Specifically, oh, I get that. I get said. that surreal, the surrealism of it, you know. Yeah. yeah, and it stands aside from all the kind of like standard medieval concepts that are in the in your standard Zelda games, exactly, you know, which are yeah. like great, obviously, but can uh, they have some tropes and stuff? And everything's just it's like the it's like the Mario two yeah. of that series. Where it's, it's just, just like, so out of place and like n- not Zelda, but Zelda. You know? Yeah, yeah. But importantly, there is. It's it's a soundtrack that not only does a lot melodically, but also does a lot extra melodically. Like there's a lot of sound effect things. Like you yeah. mentioned before that there were there was they use white noise as like ocean sounds. You know, yeah. which is definitely it's yeah. it's not necessarily a novel novel thing, but to have that be part of the ambience. Yeah. Know? So like yeah, one of the one of the main kind of motifs in in the soundtrack is it's just a really simple melodic line. It's just like do 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 do. Yeah. And that is kind of a thing that's played by a lot of the instruments that are in the thing, but it's also kind of co-opted as the theme, the motif for the character of Marin, your kind of best friend slash semi-love interest, but that's not really explained. <laughs> it's just a kid's game. Uh, so, <laughs> you ha- you know, the person that you, are mo- that you have the strongest connection with. Yeah. And there's just this moment where, like, you and Marin are kind of, like, sitting on on the beach of the island and this is all and we can get into the kind of technical limitations of the game boy of course because there were several there were a a lot (laughs) there's more limitations than non-limitations yeah that was weird who knows how to measure it yeah um but so there's like this like atmospheric that that um Motif, which is also associated with you, the main friendship connection you have in the plot of the game, as well as the kind of issue of like the existential thing, because it is also the theme of the dreaming fish creature that holds everything in its in its power. And you're sitting with Marin, and she is just talking about like, you know, like at the end of the game you like see a, a seagull fly by and you think like it's kind of implied that that's her actually she was a seagull who entered the the dream and and uh <laughs> so she's kind of like thinking about like what are we what is life and the one of the synthesizer um channels on the game boy is just pure white noise and in the genre of chiptune that's used for like um, hi hats and snares. Yeah, and which makes sense. Sh- sh- like sh- staccato. Sh- stuff yeah, like yeah. That. Um, but there's a a very slow attack filter applied to it to just emulate like um, waves crashing on a beach, just mm-hmm. like sh- yeah. And it's just slowly repeating. And then because there's so much um, there's so much capacity in those synthesizers for like pitch bending and stuff and and weird little noises up in the high pitch spectrum. There's little synthesized seagull noises oh yeah that's right yeah yeah while that's going on you know yeah and then there's like this little motif and i'm like damn like it's really well done that particular moment just sticks out as like this is a really limited medium for all of this game but Mm -hmm. especially the soundtrack and through the audio through only four channels of audio Mm -hmm. And they were able to do that. They're able to create an entire soundscape and an emotion Mm -hmm. and tap into like hard 
philosophical things to like th- think yeah, about. Yeah, and that's just a couple of sounds, like a couple of waveforms. Yeah, you know, about as minimal as you can get as far as sound is concerned. You know, yeah. that's that's really brilliant. And you know, it's one of those things where uh, people saw the potential of that. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, that was the early '90s. You know, so at that point, it had sort of not necessarily been established, but it was sort of it was up in the air that that chip tune that that manipulating waveform generation and fm synthesis and stuff like that would be mm-hmm, able mm-hmm. to create things like that you know yeah the yeah. thing is is that it's mostly japanese yeah. i mean or rather the origins come from because mm-hmm. i mean besides the fact that there were some american arcade machines a lot of the original arcade machines were of japanese origin you know gunfight yeah, yeah. and um and uh gradius and mm-hmm. a, a lot of that you know that was the introduction of certain arcade sounds, you know, using waveform generators. Yeah, you know? and and I think um, another like uh, really unique thing that that kind of planted into people's kind of awareness is, uh, especially in that time period, um, but even kind of continuing in today, I've always felt like there's a really unique kind of like jazz fusion composition mm. that is that it has kind of remained popular in Japan mm-hmm. kind of past past it's so like funny, right? it going out of style ish in America. Um, like I would liken it to like, there's lots of jazz fusion bands who've done some really good game soundtracks. Like, mm-hmm. like T square T square is an yeah. amazing band. And they, That's right. And uh, I love Cassiopeia Cassiopeia. Are they still, they're still operating, aren't they? Oh, yeah, yeah. But they were an eighties band yeah, in Japan, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. And, and those sounds kind of continued into like the late eighties and early nineties. And a lot of those people, a lot of the people who were kind of schooled in that kind of, you know, very musically literate, very like, yeah, I would say academic kind of composition, then were just given this really limited format where you have all these, this very small amount of options, but all you have is your knowledge and like your ability to just write music that's really cool. Right? I mean, that's yeah. the funny thing about it is that. It, it ended up kind of being influential because, like you said, these these people who have an academic background, who know how to put together, who know music theory, essentially, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. were given that format and then just sort of figured out how to do that, you know? Yeah, it have was like, ever, yeah. Have you ever heard the name uh, Harumi Hosono? No, I haven't. So Harumi Hosono is, well, first of all, he's a legendary Japanese musician. He really? had a band um, called... Oh, is it Happy End? I forget. But he had a folk band, essentially very similar to Crosby, Stills, and Nash, but like oh, really, really? in the 70s. He's not the guy who did the, all the perfume stuff, right? That's a different... Maybe. Pro- I'm not I sure. That... Ha- okay, first of all, Haromi Hosono has done everything. Okay. Like, okay, yeah. So in the late 70s, early 80s, he had a band in Japan called Yellow Magic Orchestra. Oh, YMO! Yeah, yeah YMO. Yeah. They, they did... were the... Uh, they did Tighten nope. Up. That was his they're, band. Their Tighten Up cover. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, they were one of the first okay. people. I mean, Brian Eno, Brian Eno had been doing stuff with synthesizers and keyboards in a ways, but mm-hmm. Yellow Magic Orchestra was really one of, if not maybe, the first band to specifically use computers and yeah. computer sounds um, to integra- integrate it into their music to make, like, archaic synth bum, bum, you know? bum, 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 bum. Oh. Exactly. Very Yellow Magic Orchestra. Oh, That's yeah. them. And then uh, they actually... They did include sounds from arcade machines in their works, you know. So that's sort of the origin point there, you know. And then, Mm -hmm. of course, Hosono released an album literally called Video Game Music in 1984, Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. was just basically that, you know. And that sort of was the birth a little bit of the concept of chiptune. Mm Because ever since then, really, what you would hear was video game soundtracks, you know. Super Mario Brothers, Legend of Zelda, you know. 
all of that, you know, using mm -hmm. that that concept. And then then you get more ambitious with the early '90s. The FM synthesis, <laughs> obviously, Link's yeah. Awakening. You know, uh, there is a guy, specifically the guy who did uh, Streets of Rage. Um, oh yes, yes. That's We're the first, about. I think, specifically. I mean, he was the first guy to use um, the introduction of FM synthesis, which is frequency modulation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, um, what, what was he? Was he using the? Because um, I remember I've worked a little bit with the the uh, the Mega Drive Genesis chip, always always in an emulator form. You can buy like plugins or download illegal. Yeah, plugins yeah. That are uh, the the what is it? The the Yamaha YM twenty six twelve. The YM twenty six twelve, which uh, is yes. very basic uh, FM. Uh huh. Uh, synthesis and is fm synthesis is something i am the way the game boy approaches uh there is one kind of um more robust synthesizer on it and i would say it's more of a wave table type yeah, situation essentially it's way more complex yeah for yeah, sure yeah you know but then the the release of that allowed a greater dynamic you know mm -hmm. and that was around you know Sort of, I mean, it, it was invented in the early 1980s, but it took into the late 90s, early 1990s for it to be employed in the way that it did now. You yeah, know? and that was kind of the last hurrah of, if I, I might be getting my history wrong, but I believe that was kind of a differentiation point between um, uh, like that chip and the consoles that it was used on and the Super Nintendo. I believe so. Which the Super Nintendo was like, one of the first consoles to use sampling mm -hmm. because it had the capacity to play back, yeah, like uh, you know, keyboard sounds. Yes, um, and so it, it ended up with its own kind of signature sound, but but it was also not, yeah, chip tune. It, yeah, it was not chip tune. It was not chip. It was it wasn't being uh, generated natively mm -hmm. by the chip itself. And exactly, yeah, the, that early Yamaha chip stuff was sculpted out of a synthesizer, which is very unique. Yeah, and that's yeah. the other thing too, is that if you've ever played an SNES game, mm -hmm. um, and it's just obvious to think about, you know, none of that really sounds like it's coming from a bleep bloop. Like, yeah. it's it's actual like sampled MIDI or uh, instruments, yeah. you know? And it's funny, that was a selling point for the SNES. Like, you know, it ended up muscling out a lot of the competitors because people were like, oh, fidelity, like this is this is turbo, turbo graphics and good sound yeah. quality. And, uh, you yep, know, yep. certain things were probably lost in translation at that mm -hmm. point. There's mm -hmm. also the Commodore, the Commodore 64 was a whole part of that as well. Mm -hmm, that early, mm -hmm. that early, before all of that. Yeah, you know? and there are there are chiptune artists who use Commodore 64, which um, is funny. Yeah. Like I, as someone who was coming into chiptune knowing what it was, but not necessarily knowing the nitty gritty, it was interesting for me to learn about the fact that when when musicians like you mm -hmm. um, play chiptune, they do it using all things from like arcade machines, uh, mm -hmm. video game consoles. You brought me a, a modded Game Boy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I held yes. it in my hands. Yes. And it's 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 literally an old Game Boy, but it's got a program it's like it's modded so that it can be used as an instrument. Yeah, I should I should probably shout out the little homebrew program yeah. stuff that I use. Uh, so that I I used um there's like a kind of a DIY company, I think out of the East Coast, I don't know, called Kitchbent. Um and it's they like just... K I T S C H so, Dash. B E N T. Okay. Um, Kitch bent. Kitch bent. Yeah, and they cool. and they do modifications and stuff. I tried to mod my my uh, personal Game Boy and I bricked it oh, because no. it, I did it very bad. Uh, it's an art. And apparently. so then I was like, I feel like I should just save up some money. And, and there's a backlight on it and like a, a higher quality because those uh, 
the headphone jack for the original Game Boy, which is the only way to get audio out of it, yeah. lost some low end. And so yeah. if you're blasting a club, you need a little bit of a better yeah. DI signal or whatnot. So these guys are good at that. Yeah. Or rather, oh, yeah. they're just professional modders for chiptune instruments. Yeah. Like, yeah. And it's all, it's generally, I don't think they make much money. All of this stuff is kind of like freeware. Uh, speaking of freeware, the program I use is called Little Sound DJ. There's two kind of um, standard programs that are available online for people who want to make chiptune um, that are like considered the standard. Uh, one is called Little Sound DJ. It's been around since like 2005 or six, I think. It's on version like eight point something now. Um, and that's just available f- like for free at like LSDJ. And you can, I think you can donate money to them. And then there's one called Nano Loop, cool. which that one I I've, I actually believe I've heard of. I yeah, John talking about it. Little Sound DJ is more geared towards composition. It's more of a, a DAW kind of setup where uh, it's it's a tracker that scrolls vertically. Nano Loop is more based around live looping. Okay. And more I would say DJ set kind of. I see. So oriented more for live performances. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, I use Little Sound DJ because I am not I'm playing guitar. So you just, that's basically, it's the backing track. It is the backing track. Okay, I see. I can see it fits different hats, you know? Yeah, yeah. Cool. That's really, really cool. Yeah. It's something, uh, the concept of it is just so cool. Just purely on a conceptual standpoint, you're not even knowing, you know, Mm -hmm. what goes into the nitty gritty, you know, just just thinking of somebody playing an old Game Boy and having that be music. Just tickles my fancy, you know? (laughs) It's it's really neat. Uh, There's, so if you don't mind, the... So, <laughs> to, to backtrack yeah, immensely, so we got into the Link's Awakening, the, the, the kind of original, these video game composers were really good without any nostalgia, like they were doing it really good at the time. Yeah. And then the second thing that kind of got me into it, because like, you know, I was born in 1992, I was kind of, you know, like ingesting all of this, like, at, like years after it happened mm-hmm. um and there was kind of a resurgence of chiptune with the kind of like retro thing like people generally my in the age indie movement uh yeah well like in in i would say between like 2005 or so and kind of to today but a lot of the stuff kind interesting. of interesting oh trailed yeah off around like 2015 or 2005 so. was around when the xbox live arcade was going on or something mm-hmm. like that right mm-hmm. so that was the first time we were starting to see the indie movement start yeah, a little yeah. bit. I'm trying to think about what the first version of that was, or like when it started coming out. Well, the thing that the thing that um that I glommed onto this is a, this is a kind of a roundabout story. So I I kind of got into um, and this is this the chiptune movement started. That was the kind of the point where it started to differentiate itself from game soundtrack I see. music, um, because people had had listened to the game soundtracks but they wanted to try to do something else with it and it kind of became wrapped up in the demo scene which demo was scene. a I remember hearing yeah, this is a keyword I've heard which was a it was this goes back to the utilization of the original hardware um, the demo scene was kind of a group of people who would given limited um like older computers uh, or whatever the computer was they were working with would create like graphical and audio presentations that pushed the hardware of that computer to its 
highest uh, like capacity. Interesting. So it was half like an artistic. You would show it on a projector, uh, and but and so it was half an artistic presentation of like this is the art that I've made. But then it was also half left-brained, where people would be like you must have programmed that really efficiently mm-hmm. because you're natively producing this amazing 3D rendering thing that's hap- like this amazing visual effect on this old computer. Yeah. And there would be these like underground meets that it was almost like, it was like really punk rock. Like that's why, that's, that's why like I started get like, I was never able to participate in that, huh. but I started reading about it and I started really loving it because it was like, taking limited technology and turning it into something beautiful and using the limitations as like a thing to inform it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. I All think, right, I, see. I think the, the, so for like contemporary chiptune, the first uh, artist I started listening to was an artist called Null Sleep. I've heard which, of them. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and Null Sleep is very important. I first heard the, um, it was a Null Sleep song called late, her laser light eyes and it was in the end credits of a uh, Halo Machinima <laughs> <laughs> that brings <laughs> that me I, back I used to watch uh, and they played this Null Sleep song um, and Null Sleep did very very much like especially like pretty early I think in like 2005, 2006 yeah. maybe 2007 um, did very like bleepy bloopy fun twee kind of like pop you know get what you would Absolutely. imagine is Game Boy music yeah and but the really the really cool thing is that I can't remember his name, but the the artist Null Sleep started a um, New York based uh, record label, a very small indie record label called Eight Bit Peoples. Eight okay. um, Bit Peoples and w- was kind of associated with the first website that I started uploading chiptune to, which was a now defunct website called 8bc.org. 8bc.org. Yeah, it's it for 8-Bit Collective. Okay, cool. Um, and it was I've heard, site. actually, 8-Bit Collective is ringing a bell now. I yeah. think I've actually been on this website. There's been, it's it's defunct now. There's been a lot of tr- movements to try to bring it back, but they, it's, it. I think it's still 404. It, it yeah. died in like, you know, 2013 or something. I wonder know. why. Was it just a lack of organization or yeah. some sampling something or? Well, the thing was, uh, there, were, I, I don't think there were samples of any other of. I, I don't think they generally trafficked in like sampled material. What you would do is you just like make a LSDJ track and you'd upload it, and everybody could listen to it. It was free. It was like, it was like SoundCloud, but with the kind of like uh, early 2010s kind of like forum community vibe. You know, where you would be on the forums and you would have your friends and your friends would upload, be like, oh, I got a new track. and you, Community and you, based. Yeah. Basically. And I started uploading stuff to that. The one, um, the one kind of thing that 8-Bit Collective got kind of widely known for is I believe there was controversy with sampling, but it wasn't them who were the problem. Uh, the old, um, one of the bands that kind of introduced Chiptune to... A lot of people from my generation was the band Crystal Castles. Oh, yeah. That old electronic band. Oh, and yes. it came out, yeah, and a lot of things have come out about that band. Yeah. And uh, horrible. Halcyon <laughs> days. Yeah. When we, when um, we did not know about back it. Back when we didn't know about it, uh, <laughs> everybody, 
the Ethan, the the guy from Crystal Castles, was kind of put on blast by Apic Collective because he everybody thought he's like this great chiptune artist, and I'm sure he did some chiptune stuff. But um, a bunch of early Crystal Castles songs were songs that he downloaded from Apic Collective. Wow, holy and crap! Gave to the singer, gave to Alice, and she just sang. So over he didn't him. even write the music. He just yeah. pulled it off of the website. They just, just put like, it and you, you know, and Crystal Castles operating in like my the days of MySpace music. So they just put it on MySpace music and. Mm-hmm. and it just was just a thing. Blew up. Released it on an album, and then people were like, "Hey, that's not your music." This I posted this to this forum. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and yeah, that was an early controversy. Wow. As, as if I didn't need to know anything <laughs> shittier about Crystal Castles. Yeah. God bless Alice. God I, bless I, Alice. I, I hope least. she's doing what is she, wonderfully. I heard she's doing some solo stuff now, but yeah, I, haven't I, I haven't heard. To it I follow her on Instagram, but I think she's. I think she's playing live. She's, okay, good. You'll have to let me know if she's ever around here because I'd love to see that. Let's talk a little bit about. So obviously we the SNES, you know, other other arcade machines, normal sources of of waveform generation, mm-hmm. general chiptune started to be on the decline. So really chiptune music was was in its first heyday at least in the 1980s mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. it started dipping in popularity. Yeah. I wonder why specifically it came back in like the 2000s. What exactly was going on there? Cuz I feel like hmm. all of a sudden you just started to see it in yeah. like I know Beck was doing some music that had chiptune in it. Yeah, he did a uh, girl. Yeah, girl had chiptune. I believe that was done with LSDJ. Yes, because there's think a so. there's that um, there's some like stock. The Game Boy has very limited four uh, bit sampling, and so it comes loaded with like a six oh six and a seven oh seven and a eight oh eight and your basic Rollins and like a drumulator and stuff. Um, really terrible four bit uh, emulation. And but if you hear that drum kit playing. On a Game Boy track, you know it's LSDJ, and I believe he's using one. Like you can kind of tell those samples, um, yeah, uh, in that little intro to that song. Interesting. Um, so yeah, definitely, pretty sure LSDJ. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. That would make sense. <laughs> little, little, little nerdy, nerdy note. <laughs> I love nerdy notes. <laughs> but yeah, it did start nerdy coming back in the early 2000s. There's Beck. I know. I heard. I mean, obviously, there were bands like the Postal Service, you mm, know, electronic mm-hmm, artists mm-hmm. that. I mean, electronic music was sort of finding a much wider audience after, because. I mean, electronic music in general was was had a, a thing in the '80s, and then there was the, all the little branching little paths in the '90s with IDM mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. rave and and then all the 2000s this sort of stuff was like in the, in the 2000s just sort of. Well, there was also technically there was a small lived genre. I don't know if people are still doing music in it, but there was a small lived genre called electro clash. Ele- yeah, yeah. Was that like Larue type stuff? Larue. Or, yeah. I know. Um, uh, Fisher Spooner was electro clash. Mm-hmm, technically, mm-hmm. Peaches. Um, and there were chiptune influences, at least I know yeah. for sure. You know, it's but always been tiny... kind of a trendy. It was not always been a trendy sound, but it's always been a specific sound you can dip into. Exactly. Yeah. And then, of course, again, a, a weird underground movement that's sort of bringing it back. Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah. it's funny how out of nowhere, almost it just sort of started to seem to bubble back up into society, especially mm-hmm. when there was sort of, as far as rock culture is concerned there was starting to become a more electronic influence based on what Radiohead was doing, what Bjork was doing, all of the mm-hmm. weird little uh, experimental projects in the late 90s. Electronic music was starting to bubble into rock music. And I think from then, there's that chiptune subculture that was coming mm-hmm. into it, you know? Yeah, I I would... Okay, there's probably a lot of different reasons why it started to bubble back. Uh, I think one reason is just because of generation stuff. Like, my generation in the 2010s was like, 18 and mm-hmm. 19 and Me too. don't check my math but I think but, we're about the same age. Yeah, I yeah, graduated yeah. high school in 2010. 
yeah, yeah. That was that was about. I I'm twenty. I'm almost twenty eight. So cool. yeah, roughly, roughly that. You'll that love it. Is, yeah, <laughs> I just turned twenty eight. You'll love it. Oh, good. I'm looking for. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no. Um. I people just started, um, becoming young adults at that time and started entering the, you know, consuming music demographic. Yeah, I, yeah. I owe a lot of um, the kind of aesthetic considerations of the genre was. This actually goes goes really. Uh, it's a nice transition from. That record label, Null Sleep's record label, 8-Bit Peoples, um, was the, and kind of the 8-Bit collective type community, it was all New York based. And so right around that time period, there started being a really um, bustling New York chiptune scene. Yes. And there were lots of venues in New York that were playing chiptune artists. And like, you've got to, you've got to mention them because they were my favorite band for a long time. And they're probably the most important chiptune band, but Anamanaguchi started coming out and they were, they were, their original releases were all through Null Sleep's record label. I see. They were the star band on that. Anamanaguchi yeah. is, I believe, it's one of those things where if you hear the word chiptune, even if you're not a fan of chiptune, it just, Anamanaguchi will immediately come to you. It's like, yeah. I they're just the band that has owned that label more than anything mm-hmm, i think mm-hmm. you know um god they're so good they're just so good because they they're classically epic mm-hmm. like i hate to use that word in 2020 maybe it'll oh, come no, around yeah. i don't know but like but they just do as far as the origin of those sounds are concerned they just sort of fit that label like they make music that sound like mm-hmm. final boss music and yeah, like yeah arcade games you know and like, and and they were one like i think uh, in any kind of like DIY community, especially one that's based around like people being kind of nerdy and there being a technical aspect to it, almost like punk rock or or like guitar snobs or something, people will always kind of shit on the popular like band from it because like oh yeah they sold out they started doing more EDM type stuff or whatever. Um, it's pretty much the consensus that Anamanaguchi, all four of those guys. They all did chip tune. Yeah. One of them is like a, uh, I think their bassist is like a lighting technician and he does all their light shows and stuff. They, in those early per, like recordings that they released, they were the best trackers. Yeah. Like, they were just so Bar good at none, it. the sounds that they were getting. And, you know, there's old like forum posts that they were, they were posting on of like the guy, one of the guys, they had to figure out a way to, uh, to use an NES on stage in a live context, which is like, oh, are you, you going to bring a TV up on exactly. stage? And he he modded a, one of the, you know those uh, portable PlayStation 1 oh, yeah. little yeah, the circle little, the little tiny screens? Yeah. He modded one of those to like hook up to the, the AV thing of his Nintendo, and so it's just like this duct-taped screen. And there's, like, a perfect marriage. There's like old like pictures of them from like 2010, and he's just like browsing Tumblr. On a, on the a small pasty. Oh yeah. my god. Uh, and and so they were it's just really like, cool. It's it was, really cool when you think about it. It know? was the first time for me like that because you showed like you know no sleep songs to somebody like this is cool. This is like fun. It's retro. And then for me, Anamanaguchi was like they were really punk rock, mm-hmm. <laughs> pop were, punk. They were pop punk. They were just pure pleasure. Yeah, you know, it was like, it aesthetically like coalesced into this like, and the all you know they released videos that were like them high at a bowling alley yeah. and like pastel yeah. colors and punk and spirit. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, that's so cool. You know, I, I, yeah. I, 
And I remember the, my first exposure to them was when they did the Scott Pilgrim soundtrack. Yes. I love that That was soundtrack. a lot of people's first exposure to them. And that was the Scott Pilgrim We're talking Pilgrim about Scott soundtrack. Pilgrim, the game. The game, yeah. Yes, the little Because there was a up. movie. I mm. think... Um, Beck the actually was on Beck the, the soundtrack for the movie. It was indeed. Yeah. Uh, wait, who did the soundtrack for... It was a band. Who did the soundtrack to... Uh, to Scott Pilgrim. I know Metric was on it. Metric was on it. I think Metric might have actually done the soundtrack. That's I'm not that's sure. Entirely possible. I have to look it up. But the game Scott Pilgrim, which was mm-hmm. based on the movie, which was based on the comic book, actually. Which if, yeah. you, if you haven't read the Scott Pilgrim books, they're pretty great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I loved the Scott Pilgrim books. Going back to them, uh, I would say some problematic aspects. Yeah, they're a little how, problematic, a but, little bit. But again, of yeah, their time. Of their time. Mm-hmm. And, and Brian Lee O'Malley, the author, has made some amazing... Um, has made some amazing books, uh, like, and has matured past yeah. that um, in his time. So I highly recommend. True, absolutely. His future work. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and the Scott Pilgrim soundtrack was really important because Onomatopoeia in their start were insiders to the genre. They were really good and really technical, and everybody had a lot of respect for them. Even the you know hardcore mm-hmm. insider, you've got to just use hardware and stuff. Uh, and then they got this, and they started getting recognition mm-hmm. in popular culture. Mm-hmm. People started going to the nostalgia yeah. part of it, and that's why I think they're really cool because they they were always legit. Yeah, and they bridged the gap between, you know, doing doing a very small chiptune show in your friend's basement with a projector, like you know, playing demos over it, and doing video game soundtracks and like normal people yeah not to, you know not, you, know, you not, know not just basement dwellers wider you know. culture being aware of it exactly um there's one more thing i want to talk about before we move on yeah, uh yeah. so a one of the first things that a band like on Onaguchi and a lot of chiptune artists have been doing this before mm-hmm. but it really it's it was listening to their music specifically that it sort of made me realize is that it, especially at old chiptune because waveform generation is just such an archaic form of forming sounds it's very mm-hmm. hard to do polyphonic sounds which mm-hmm. is why you hear so many quick arpeggiations yes, yes. it's just such a cool cheat yeah. on how to like make a really nice sounding full polyphonic sound with multiple sounds oh yeah with while still circumventing the technical aspects of it you know? oh yeah i i agree and that's that like it that goes back to the um like again in in the like more hardcore sectors of people who just want you to make uh, chip team music using hardware that's one of the things that people will call you out on if they see you using like samples or a midi plugin as they'll be like oh yeah you're playing like six notes at a time like that's good than that <laughs> and i i do both like uh and there should never be any judgment or gatekeeping in terms of that but just in my opinion it's really limiting in a really neat way. Yeah, right? Um, yeah. Facing the, that limitation. It's, it's, it's mm-hmm. always creative. The best kinds of creative endeavors are ones where you've put limits on yourself. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and and it's really cool because like it's almost like the composing on a Game Boy almost forces you... It's like it's like doing leg day or something, or maybe not doing leg day, <laughs> where like, you're, you're, it forces you to work muscles that you're not used to working. Yeah. Because... If you make electronic music, if you're, you know, making beats or doing any sort of electronic stuff, you're probably going to be doing MIDI and you're probably going to be working in a DAW and you're probably going to be, you know, doing plugins and you load up your program and there's 
a thousand possible tracks and I I don't know what a lot of people's experience is, but you just, for me, I, I look at it and I'm like, I spend three hours going through kick drum samples and I'm like, I should just write a song. Yeah, I'm like, just sick of this. So, it just makes you freeze Yeah, creatively. honestly. Well, that's the thing. Online music creation, or at least computer music creation, so many different possibilities, so many different sounds. Yeah, My boyfriend's sort of the same way. Like, yeah. When he's creating a track, he just sort of like is like, oh, where do I start? Literally, yeah. could just choose anything. Uh, yeah, you know, you've got you've been given so many options. It and all those options can be used to, to can be used to make an amazing array of things, but you have to start somewhere. Yeah, exactly. And on Game Boy, so the limitations of the of the original Game Boy sound chip are it has four channels mm-hmm. of sound so yes. only four note polyphony yes um one channel is dedicated white noise which you can apply envelopes and filters to you know random yeah you know just every you can change the pitch and it, it makes it darker or lighter white noise but that is one entire channel yeah and then it has three synthesizers two of them just make square waves the only tonal change you can make to those are um uh, oh god, what's the what's the uh, uh, oh I'm blanking on it. it's it's <laughs> oh no uh, duty duty is the duty cycle of the uh, oh, yes. square wave which yes. which has to do with like um is a square is it a very small <laughs> square wave or a large square wave in yeah, terms yeah. of how long the square lasts yeah. so it's more like versus like boo yeah this and is, that's, this that's, is like that's, Two different sounds, but it's the same wave. Yeah, you know? and th- so there's four. There's yeah. four different ways your square waves can sound on those two channels. That, but that's really it. Yeah, and just the, a couple of of sounds and, and a couple. Of... Yeah, yeah. So the, limiting. Yeah, the, the and the the last channel um, is less limiting, um, but it's also kind of more limiting. It is a kind of wave, wave channel that can either do four bit audio, which. 4-bit is not high-quality audio. Uh, so, no. I mean, considering that, what, most MP3s are 320? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 4 is a little on the lo-fi side. 4-bit is like what you, if you've ever, if you're an electronic musician and you've ever put on like a bit crusher plug-in onto anything, uh, usually they'll have like a bit rating and it's like, oh, I'm 16, and then you like turn the knob down and once you reach 4-bit, it's like... Yeah. So it's bad. Um... And then, so that channel also has like a little wavetable synthesizer and has a square wave, triangle wave, and a sine wave. Yeah. And a little bit of envelope filtering. And you can kind of, that's where you want to make like kicks and stuff. And okay. Pew, pew, pew. Yeah. Like, there's kind of a little bit of automation you can do. Right. Okie dokie. Um, but that's it. Okay. You have three notes that can be played. And, and in general, there's. N- the the even though we do like uh, hats and snares in the noise channel, you want your kick drum to not be on the noise channel because yeah. So one of your channels is your kick drum. Yeah. And so you have to make that work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> you exactly. You can play two notes at once, but luckily we have the ability to, um, when you trigger a note on the Game Boy, um, in LSDJ you have. It's divided into measures, and your measures are divided into 16th notes. And each 16th note a note can trigger. And then there's a thing called a table, which is 
further subdivisions of a, of into 16 of each note. Right. And so each of those subdivisions is a tick mm-hmm. in the computer's internal clock. I'm sorry if I'm I'm sorry if I'm being boring. <laughs> no, please. So whenever you whenever you hit a note on the Game Boy, there's 16 little mini notes inside that that can trigger. I see. Which can be looped. Uh-huh. And each one of those can be a different note, which is how you get the arpeggiated the super so the super fast like you are allowed you're not allowed to play many notes at the same time, but you are allowed to play infinitesimal inhuman speed uh, arpeggios and even like non-arpeggios like octaves and yeah. stuff uh just through virtue of the way that the system is set up and right. so you're forced to write not a lot of notes at the same time exactly but you can write it's you don't There's have to so play much it. you can do with that limited technology yeah given like given that there are thousands of VSTs that are potentially of use, like oh, what's a better violin sample? You know, yeah, yeah that yeah. this many sounds work with it, and the mm-hmm. fact that there are so many people who have been able to do so much with those limited sounds, you know, yeah. a says a lot about music production, modern mm-hmm. music production, and b, you know, also says a lot about human creativity. Yeah, yeah. But then the second thing is that this, the fact that a band like Anamanaguchi is all of a sudden finding an audience with a, video game players, and B, music fans, mm-hmm. combined with the fact that bands like Crystal Castles, um, other bands that were doing chiptunes like this, this was all in the late 2000s up to, like, 2010. Yeah. This it, is it when even bled into, of... like, Kesha songs. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, yeah, actually, <laughs> yeah. yeah. TikTok had a chiptune refrain, yeah, and that was yeah. the biggest single of 2008. Yeah, like, I don't know how they made it. It was, it was definitely Square Waves, though, and it was definitely meant to emulate that sound. Somehow. Yeah, yeah. Who knows? The fact that... People were aware this of was, it. I think we're getting at it like a nexus, like a place where all of a sudden you have this second wave mm-hmm. of chiptune, but now it's based in... I mean, again, it sort of coincides with the nostalgia market becoming a thing in the late 2000s. For sure. Which also lent itself to a certain brand of indie music, you know? Mm-hmm. It's funny how the nostalgia market is now almost 10 years old. You know? Yeah, We're still yeah. getting past that. We're kind of getting... I, I've noticed... Um, this is uh, this is just to add to that. This is kind of a, an opportunity to, to like... Um, to... You know, I mentioned Anamanaguchi, and they were one of my favorite artists ever. But there's another chiptune artist who's really good and is kind of having an interesting relationship with the nostalgia market. Um, uh, the I, I think they're from California. Uh, Slime Girls Interesting. was a I... band that released, I think, their first album in 2013. Okay. I actually saw them in Seattle. There's, um, <laughs> I had a really weird moment. They're amazing chiptune band. Um, I had a weird moment where uh, I saw Slime Girls in Seattle playing, uh, I think they were playing a four-piece, uh, like, kind of live with laptop, um, and I it was amazing, and um, turns out their drummer, who they were touring with, is a local Seattle drummer now. No way! Um, and I... Uh, I live at um, I live at a house venue. I live at the Mirage Garage in the U, in the U district. Oh, I've been there. And great um, venue. I was seeing um, I was seeing the amazing. They're kind of a rave uh, rave almost metal sc- screaming kind of uh, like almost black metal kind of thing. Uh, they're called Yuffie. You, um, okay, I've heard yeah, of them. Former kind of math rock band, but have really made the electronic transition recently. And I was like. Oh, what this guy who's playing drums at my house looks really familiar. Oh shit, it's you, that guy. you were touring with Slime Girls. Slime Girls. His name is Jackson. He's an amazing drummer, and I, I was like, wow, this is right. part of the Seattle All music right. scene. Now. Shout out. Yeah, that's, I don't know. That's really Big cool. Shout out to, to Yuffie. But oh yeah, so Slime Girls, um, mm-hmm. 
Uh, it's just one person. Uh, I believe their name is Pedro uh, from California. He's been doing it for a long time. And um, one of my favorite albums of all time is called Vacation Wasteland. Vacation Wasteland by um, Slime Girls. I have the vinyl of Vacation Wasteland. Uh, it I is do. a pastel pink vinyl. I see it. Um, I'm looking at this cover right here. beautiful. And yep. it was very much like in the early Anamanaguchi days, Game Boy, drums, punk rock guitar, beautiful, beautiful square waves. Um, and then kind of to bring it back to the whole nostalgia thing, um, the later Slime Girls releases started going into the, um, started kind of abandoning the, the Game Boy E sound and started almost embracing like PS1 generation kind of uh interesting that more limited yeah. spyro the dragon uh-huh. kind of synth yeah uh, more more polyphonic but still of an era there was a lot of that in that era yeah, yeah and released some amazing albums that were just synth music and were made on a vst like on a computer but were intentionally meant to evoke that, that era. different period yeah which is weird when you think about it because it's like there were still hardware limitations there, but you are not constraining yourself with the hardware limitations, but you are composing in a creative style that is pretending to yeah. have the hardware limitations, Yeah, and it's amazing. It's so <laughs> like, strange. <laughs> when you think about it, this, the conceptual circles you have to run around that. Yeah, Man, it makes that's you think really about cool. crea- creativity in like a really interesting I way. I think chiptune really is a representation of a specific... of almost sort of a, a testament to the fact that people can do so much with so little, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's what it's so, I mean, just from a pure pleasure standpoint, I mean, you and I are the same generation. There's mm-hmm. a younger generation. There's a slightly older generation that have grown up with those sounds that understand those sounds. Mm-hmm. It's not just bleeps and bloops. Like it's like, it's history. It's nostalgia. It's yes. the past. It's a, it's a, a part of the brain that is just not in people that are older than that. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I would argue that, I, I would kind of agree with that. I also pretty firmly believe that there's like an intrinsic nature to square waves and kind of the the waves that are produced by limited hardware um, that for me almost feels almost absent nostalgia feels kind of like Elemental. very true. Yes. Yeah. Because, you know, sine waves and square waves, they're, they're very simple iterations upon just fundamental frequency. Sound dissolved to a waveform. Yeah. A, a yeah. square wave for me is like, it's just there. You know, it's it's what a distorted guitar becomes. The more you turn up your gain on your amp, the more of a square wave. It yeah. Becomes. And then when you hit the fuzz all the way, it's like, it's a big block. Yeah. For me, it feels like the reason there's an emotional resonance besides nostalgia is a, like a very simple wave playing like a heartfelt melody it feels like just a raw open nerve yeah it's like a bleeding cut it's just like i can see that ironically i i walked in here with my thumb bleeding everywhere blood i got blood so much oh no i (laughs) i mean you only got it on the box i am i'm happy i didn't blood on yourself (laughs) yeah i got blood on myself and on my box it's a little scary which i'm going to i'm going to um eat anyway probably the blood's just on the outside it's whatever yeah, um, yeah. because of the territory. I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay. I just had a hangnail when, right when I walked into the studio. <laughs> <laughs> um, before we close out, there's one more artist I want to talk about. Yes. And it, it concerns blood. 
Did you see the movie It Follows? No, no, I didn't. Um, so I, I've heard lots of lots of uh, good things about it. I know the general great, wonderful modern horror movie. Mm-hmm. The guy who did the soundtrack for It Follows um, mm-hmm. is actually an artist. His name is Disasterpiece. Oh yeah, Disasterpiece. Yes, yeah. he's yeah. the guy who did the soundtrack for that. But he's also done soundtracks for Fez for Hyper Light Drifter. He's yes, another yes. one of those guys, maybe that. Like Anamanaguchi, where you just think of Chiptune and you automatically think Disasterpiece. Yeah, he's you know? he. When I think Disasterpiece, I think uh, really nicely crafted like indie game soundtracks. Exactly. Or, yeah, that's his thing. But that's another echelon. That's mm-hmm. that goes beyond. Like Anamanaguchi did the Scott Pilgrim the Game soundtrack, which was a video game soundtrack, but they were doing their own albums before that. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. Disasterpiece is somebody who started built his fame as a video game soundtrack because. There was a whole movement, an indie movement, a retro movement in that genre. Yeah, yeah. That started to borrow from that. A, because again, hardware limitations, but then Mm -hmm. also creative limitations, specifically limiting yourself for that. There is that nostalgia aspect to it. Mm -hmm. But all of that is sort of representative of that new wave of chiptune where there's a utilitarian method. There's a utilitarian, um, what's the term? There's a meaning for that, like a purpose. Yes. Instead yes. of just, oh, we're just going to create music that's of this variety. It evokes you know? something. Exactly. So it evokes a simplicity. Yeah. And and the thing about it is that it's just, it's not done yet. There's so mm-hmm. much you can do with chiptune still. Yeah. That's still very exciting. You at, know? at the point that chiptune is not, it's not defined by its, uh, it's not really defined by its sound. I mean, it kind of is, but the, the point that chiptune runs out of steam is the point at which people stop being able to write music with just like good notes exactly you know and that will never happen it will never happen because it's just the good melodies are good melodies Mm -hmm. i would in the disaster piece vein i i think a really good example of that that uh aesthetic being evoked is uh like undertale undertale was really oh my god that soundtrack was so good do you and the soundtrack was oh. uh, in every interview uh, that Toby Fox did. He he was just like, oh yeah, I I, I did that in like you know GarageBand. Yep. Well, he stock was. Sound. Uh, I used the chiptune plugin. He was an electronic artist before he uh, before he did video games. Yeah. But then he was working on that game for forever. And you know, to to bring it back to the whole DIY thing, like that is that is a, a game maker. Game, game maker, yeah, absolutely. You know, just, just, you're, so you're, it's all done within that engine. Yeah, basically, yeah. basically made an RPG maker and defined again by its limitations. Exactly. Well, it goes to show you, as long as you have that spirit, that mm-hmm. DIY spirit, the punk spirit, it can infiltrate anything, no matter what it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Which is why I'm really excited to hear what you're going to be having up in the frontier. Once, oh, nice. uh, more stuff comes out with that. Oh, thank um, you. Make sure to check out uh, Hurry Up Snufkin. The Chipsoon solo work by Jordan Bronner. Yes. Also, check out Meanderthals. They're not doing anything <laughs> anymore, but again, album was really great. Jordan, thank you so much for being on this yeah, podcast. Yeah, of course. If, really if, you don't mind, if you don't mind if I add, um, so I changed over the Meanderthals Facebook to Hurry Up Snufkin. Yes. I finagled a way to do it. Facebook hates it when you change they your band name. Really, oh my God, you have no idea. I, I think, <laughs> I think some, everybody has gone through this at some point. Like I the, made a fuss about it, and I asked to speak to their manager, and... <laughs> And I did it, god damn it. Well, congratulations. I so it's Hurry Up Snufkin on Facebook, and it's Hurry Up Snufkin on Instagram, Perfect. and there's lots of kind of Moomin Troll themed aesthetic Excellent. images. So. Perfect. Check out the Moomins. Check out Hurry Up Snufkin. Check out um, Anamanaguchi, Disaster Piece. Slime um, Girls. Slime Girls. Amazing. Uh, 
don't check out Crystal Castles. Don't you, you know <laughs> well, what? Not their earlier. It's stuff. done. It's done. Yeah, you, they happened, and then like you know, Witch House happened, and there's lots of better Witch House than the pre Witch House of Crystal Castles. Exactly. That's a good. That's that's good. That I like yeah. that statement. Maybe the one song they did with uh, Robert Smith. That was oh, a good yeah, song. They did that's a. Right. We can't. We're, we've got to finish. We do. We got, we got to we got to <laughs> talking. Thank you guys so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Uh, make sure to check me. out uh, tapedeckpodcast.com. We take out. We do stuff uh, all the days, every day. Uh, thanks for listening. I hope you guys have a wonderful day, and I hope you guys have a wonderful tomorrow. Take care. Bye bye.